Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I am Richard Leibovitz, and in today's episode, we've got Professor Sam Brunson. Professor Brunson is the Georgia Reithal Professor of Law at Loyola Chicago. He joined the Loyola faculty in 2009. His research focuses on the ways the federal income tax affects discrete groups of taxpayers with special focuses on investors and families. Today's discussion was about his new book, God and the IRS. It's very, very fascinating to both Nico and I, who co-hosted with me. We get into religious exemptions, we get into taxing clergy, objections to spending, religious communitarianism, and things of that nature. We also get into his recommendations for a framework for religious tax accommodation, so, members of Congress, if you're listening, please read God in the IRS, Accommodating Religious Practice in the United States Tax Law. And without further ado, Professor Sam Brunson. Some friend, huh? That's, uh, all right. I mean, he invited me, so... Fair, fair. Oh, and welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Richard Leibovitz. And I'm Nico Osfina. And today we've got Professor Samuel Brunson. Uh, Professor Brunson teaches business organizations, federal income tax, and international law at Loyola. And today we're discussing his book, God and the IRS, Accommodating Religious Practice in the United States Tax Law. Professor Brunson, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's... Let's start back with a. First off, if if you have a Twitter out there, his Twitter handle is Sam Brunson without any of the vowels, and it's quite entertaining to follow. I saw that you pinned this the New York Times update that's hilarious that says, uh, "Admit it, you're not an expert in tax policy, but the GOP tax plan is moving forward quickly. Here's help deciphering it. You have screenshot it and written, actually, New York Times. I am." Yeah, there was a New York Times reporter who replied to that saying, I knew someone was going to do this. <laughs> Which I, I loved. But, uh, yeah, no. Uh, so how about let's start. Where are you from originally? How did you? Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California in the suburbs just north of San Diego. Okay. Um, and then I eventually went to Brigham Young University for my undergrad. I studied English and Portuguese literature while I was there and a little bit of music. And I went to Columbia for law school and surprised my aspirations of being a jazz saxophone player switched into being um, a tax attorney. So those two things don't go hand in hand? You know, the the, the English part does actually go hand in hand pretty well with the tax attorney. The music, yeah. (laughs) So how was that transition? How did you go from wanting to pursue music as a career to being a lawyer and none other than a tax lawyer. So I, I went through a couple steps on that. I, I decided that I wasn't good enough to make a living as a musician. So I, I gave that up when I was like early 20s and not as dumb as I had been earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shifted into literature and I wanted to either be a writer or a teacher. And then I discovered that, um, I, you know, that that was also not the direction that I ended up wanting to go. So like any good liberal arts undergrad who had no idea what to do with his life, I applied to law school. Um, 
Okay. I, I ended up in law school kind of yeah. with a sense I wanted to do something. I couldn't have said the word transactional at the time because I didn't know what a transactional attorney was. Sure. But I, I knew I wanted to do something business related because I didn't want to be talking to people in court. Okay. And, you know, okay. you, you kind of have the two. As far as I knew, you had the two sides. I had a friend who was a year ahead of me at law school mm-hmm. who said, you need to take um, the federal income tax class. You need to take it from Professor Zelenak, which means you have to wait till second semester of your 2L year, but you need to take his class. And I did. Absolutely fell in love with the area. Um, it, it was fascinating. It, I, I wasn't a math person. I, I'm capable of math, but that's not really my thing. Sure. Um, but I, I learned that tax law is more like word problems. It's stories. It's reading statutes. It's analyzing them, figuring out how they fit in the real world to business transactions. And then I summered a law firm. I rotated through the tax department. I liked the people there. I liked the work that they did. Mm-hmm. And essentially, I was hooked. Okay. And, and then you became a teacher and author. <laughs> well, kind of, so kind I, of I, circled I, back to all that. <laughs> I, I, I practiced law in New York for about four years. Yeah. Um, I practiced at a big firm doing a lot of mutual fund stuff, a lot of hedge fund stuff, and then mm-hmm. some other M&A stuff and you know, real estate, whatever it was that our clients needed done. Um, and I had kind of always, ever since starting law school, I kind of in the back of my mind wanted to do academia. I'd wanted to teach. Back when I was studying music, I thought maybe I'll be a music teacher. When I was studying English, I thought maybe I'll try to teach high school or college English. And I, I ended up, after a couple of years, I wrote an article because that's one of the things you need to do to get into academia generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I had fun writing it. I actually wrote it usually between 10 at night and 1 in the morning after my wife and daughter had gone to bed for the night. Yeah. So I, I had several weeks of staying up until 1 or 2 writing something, but it, it's what I had to do. Okay. Um, and then I put my uh, – I, I applied for a teaching job, and Professor Qual here called me up in August of probably – 2008 invited me here for an interview and they liked me enough to hire me excellent so this might be a self-serving question because i'm aspiring to become a a tax attorney but what's it like um what can you give us a little bit of your experience about being a tax attorney and what they do on a day-to-day basis so i feel like being a tax attorney is one of the more humane types of law that you can practice partly because I like how you say that. (laughs) You you have emergencies. There are things that need to be done immediately, but your emergencies aren't the entire deal. Your emergencies are a small subset of the deal, and usually in transactions, um, people try to get the tax issues worked out early on in the transaction. So you're not staying up for a week before the deal closes trying to figure out the little things. Your part is mostly done earlier in the transaction. Um, they, they are still going to call you. You're still going to work on it and be involved in it. But um, you, you don't have the very last second stuff that often corporate attorneys have to deal with. The hard thing about being a tax attorney is there's a steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like as a corporate attorney, you do a lot of document review early on. You get used to the documents. You're reading things, and you you have to be knowledgeable about them. You have to read them intelligently, but they you don't have to be applying the law quite yet. Similarly with litigation, often you can spend your first couple years doing discovery stuff, and doing the discovery, doing the document review, it helps you 
learn the rhythms and learn the words and learn the language and learn the law. And it is time intensive. You, you have to be reading these documents for a lot of hours, but it's not quite as initially taxing as tax work, intellectually taxing. Whereas in tax work, uh, pretty much immediately you have to be figuring out what the law is and how it applies. So you, you learn really quickly that what you learned in law school is a great foundation, but no one's going to pay you for the information that your law professors give you. That's the stuff you have to know in advance. Mm -hmm. So it, there tends to be a steep learning curve as you learn all the stuff that you didn't know. I feel like that, I, I mean, it's hard to say objectively how long that learning curve lasts, but I feel like that learning curve could be anywhere between a year and three years. And then it, not that you stop learning, but at that point you start becoming comfortable with what you're doing. And what you're doing will be anything from looking in a big deal, figuring out who owes which taxes and how the deal should be structured to be the most tax efficient, to looking through mutual fund disclosures about the potential tax consequences, to looking at financial instruments and seeing what the tax consequences to each side are, um, to occasionally figuring out what the New York transfer tax is on a real estate deal. Um, I saw your resume. You did not, or the uh, little blurb they right. put up on the website, you did not get a LLM in tax. I didn't get an LLM. Do you think that would have helped curve the, or helped curb the learning curve? I, I think there's a lot of value if you can do it, if you have time and the interest in getting an LLM. Mm -hmm. um, I practiced in New York, and the law firm I was at said, we'll pay for you to go at night to get an LLM and you can imagine how much fun it is to work all day as an attorney yeah. and then go to school at night. Yeah. Many people do it and I'm very impressed with people who can pull that off. Sure. Um, they, their feeling was that they, they could teach me as much as an LLM could. Mm -hmm. um, LLM is valuable in two big ways. One is that it's a signal to potential employers that you're interested in tax work that it's something that you've been willing to dedicate an extra year to. Okay. And the other major benefit, is more substantial benefit, is that you get a broad grounding in a lot of tax areas. So you get to take a year of just tax classes. Mm -hmm. So we offer, what, a dozen, maybe 15 tax classes. Um, and in your LLM, you get to take another, say, eight to 12 tax classes. Mm -hmm. So it gives you a broader background. Like, I, in law school never took a corporate tax class. I should have, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. So everything that I know about corporate tax, I learned in practice. Um, if I had had the background of a corporate tax um, class, I would have had a broader view of how things fit together. I did take international tax, and that was a lifesaver in a lot of ways because there are concepts and terminology and other things that would have just been really contributed to that learning curve that I didn't have to learn because I knew what a PFIC was, I knew what subpart F was. I may not have known all the rules surrounding it, I may not have known it in huge detail, but I at least had a general idea of, of what it was. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that was just, I was just curious because I was also considering going into tax and that, that I'd been getting this advice a lot and so I, I didn't know if it would help curve or anything like it, that. But. I, I think it would. Yeah. I, again, I didn't do it so mm -hmm. I can't say from first-hand so, yeah. experience. Gotcha. I, 
And basically, I didn't do it. I started it. I did one semester of an LLM at NYU. That was while you were working? While I was working. Yeah, and, and you, right it, when yeah. my oldest daughter was born. Okay. And <laughs> at that point... That's a lot to take I, on at once. I yeah. figured I could handle two of the three of being a dad, being a full-time yeah. attorney, and being a student. But, yeah. Um, I found in that... And you should close your ears. You guys are almost graduated, so it doesn't matter. One of the two tax classes I took in the evening, I never broke the shrink wrap on the book. <laughs> That's a bad way to go about yeah. it. I, yeah. I wasn't getting value. I, I was getting the value from the lectures, and the uh -huh. lectures were valuable, but I wasn't getting value from me or from my law firm that was paying for it at the time. Sure. Um, and the combination of my daughter's birth and the fact that I had never opened the book suggested to me that maybe... Uh, yeah. Maybe at that point in my life, it wasn't the thing to do. Mm -hmm. If I had stayed in practice a couple more years, I probably would have gone back to get an LLM. Yeah. Okay. So I was just just curious. So um, we were we wanted to get into the book uh, again. God in the IRS: Accommodating Religious Practice in United States Tax Law. Where can it be found? Um, Amazon, Amazon. And every well, every online portal that sells books. Okay. Gotcha. So, if I may, before we get into the substantive issue yeah. inside the book, I, I, I'm interested in how it came about. So, because, you know, in tax in itself is a small niche, and then there's a inverted pyramid, I guess you could say, of all these other things that you can attach to tax law. Why religion? How did that come about? Um, a, couple, a couple reasons. One is that for the last probably nine or ten years, I've blogged at a religious on a religious blog about religious issues, but especially about when tax intersects with those issues. Um, I, I can blog about anything that I want to, but they brought me on because of the tax thing. Okay. So I've been attuned to the world of tax and religion intersecting. Another reason is people have thought a lot and written a lot about the taxation of churches about how we deal with religious organizations, churches, synagogues, mosques, and the like. There hasn't been as much thought and almost no systemic thought about the way we tax people who go to those churches, to those synagogues, and to those mosques. Um, and in fact, as, as I say in my book, as you go through the provisions that apply specifically to religious individuals, there's really no rhyme or reason to them. Um, so I thought, I could either see if there was a way to synthesize rhyme and reason, or barring that, I could use the stories of these different provisions to figure out some sort of framework that could maybe underlie the way we think about religion, about religious practice and taxation. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I, I found interesting how the title says accommodating religious practice in the United. I don't know how much. Uh, you actually had to do with the final title that shows here. Uh, that that was my title. Okay, because it, part of the we'll get into this more in depth, but mm -hmm. you you propose a framework, right? Uh, um, and I, I wonder why that what that word specifically was not included in the title. Um, partly because um, I the well, God in the IRS was struck me as catchy. Yeah. It, oh, it's yeah. something that's that, eye-catchy. That, that oh, yeah. That was, <laughs> that's, that's the it, first thing. And the, the it's a great cover, by the way. But the, thank you. Yeah, the, uh, it, it's, it really, God in the IRS, it's really, you, the book could go several different ways. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, but I was interested because it's 
a, a legal issue. I was more interested in this idea of religious accommodation, okay. mm -hmm. which is where the law, um, under our constitutional principles, where the law treats religious practice differently from how it treats other things. Okay. Um, so framework, you're right, it probably would have been a better subtitle to have framework in there somehow, mm -hmm. but I was thinking along the lines of accommodation rather than framework. Right. The framework was not an afterthought, but the framework wasn't central to um, what the the way I was thinking. Okay. The framework mm -hmm. basically arises a little in the introduction and then in the final chapter where I discuss my policy proposal. Right. Okay. Because the the book takes you on a ride. It's a you know it it does a historical account of yeah. just general tax law and how religion plays into it, which um, I think that was what you were trying to uh, right aspire to with the title. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the fun things was just being able to tell stories here because a lot of the book is just the stories of how this particular provision arose or what the litigation surrounding this idea was you know I got to deal with Mormons and Scientologists and Catholics and I got to deal with Muslims and there are just a lot of fun stories out there. Yeah, I mean, the, the book starts with the story. Jews as well. You did, I saw a little yeah. bit of yes. uh, kibbutzim in there. Yeah. yeah. But, but it starts with Kent Hovenid. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying his I, I don't, name correctly. It sounds but good he, to me. Oh, fine. I thought it was, I had never heard of him. It was. I spent about three hours just <laughs> <laughs> reading about his case he, he's and what he claimed. Uh, fascinating in a lot of right. ways. And he was basically one of the main even though I know very little about him, he was, a Twitter discussion about him ended up being the impetus to write this book. Uh -huh. And I can't remember, did I say it in the introduction or in the footnote to the introduction? How I was sitting around getting away from family over yes, Thanksgiving. That was an introduction. Yeah, yeah right. so, and there, there was a Twitter discussion. So Twitter does good things. It uh. inspired me to actually look at this systemically and to try and write this right. book. Because this gentleman, he didn't report any income tax for decades, and he had a ludicrous claim right it, it it is a crazy um ludicrous claim it's not an uncommon one which is essentially by mm -hmm. virtue of being a religious person mm -hmm. i don't i'm not subject to the tax law of the united states and therefore i don't have to pay taxes right which which that's what it, it, it is crazy to think but once you start to think about the legal implication that's when it gets really interesting right yeah. because later on we'll get into you know, clergymen right and but, they make um similar claims to why they should not be taxed like other individuals. You, you actually wrote in the book, normatively, he argued, he being Kent Hovind, uh, argues that he should not be subject to earthly taxation on money he earns doing God's work. Right. So like that's the thought process you would say behind uh, it? Yeah, I, yeah I, I don't know his level of sincerity. I don't know if that's truly his thought process or that's his justification, but that's, right. the, that's the theory that he expounds. It could just be that God wants him to be rich. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> I, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I, I'm not going to presuppose his religious convictions. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to take this respectfully. I'm personally religious, and I want to be respectful of belief. I want to, in general, in this book, assume that Hobbin to the side, a, a few of these tax protesters to the side, that most people's assertions are at least based on true religious belief. Okay. Uh, can, yeah. Can we ask what, what faith, what sect? Sure, I'm Mormon. Okay. Gotcha. How did you? Yeah. So, 
um, before we get into the nitty gritty, I also noticed that the, the language you used was very accessible. Was this intentional in the sense that you wanted people who were not familiar with either religion or tax to be able to pick up the book and just delve right in? I was hoping that it would be accessible. I think, again, that these are really interesting stories. I am clearly a partisan for the tax law, so I, I think that people should know more about tax law than they generally do. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to write the kind of book that people could could read and enjoy, even if they don't particularly care about tax policy. I think they should care about tax policy, of course. But even if they don't, I, I wanted this to be something that people could could pick up and enjoy and read and not have to sweat through it. Yeah, I mean, I have to congratulate you for taking really complex issues and making them engaging. Thank you. Almost, I think that's the the story base that you also the story approach plays out very well. Thanks. It's also not a very uh, the this subject matter can tend to come off as quite divisive. Your book did not read that way. So, I, yeah. I figured either I would offend everybody or nobody. Yeah. And so, I'm glad it didn't come across as divisive. Oh yeah. So I, I, I did want to make that comment. But okay, let's uh, let's dive in here. Okay. The let's start with. Uh, and I've seen that you've actually given several speeches on this topic in the past. Right. So what's the? I guess what's the overall thesis of the book? So the overall thesis, I don't think I can distill it into one sentence, but I can get it in a sure. couple. Yeah. Which We've it, got time. Perfect. <laughs> um, the, the tax law provides some accommodations for religious practice. The Supreme Court has told us there are no mandatory tax accommodations because tax is such an important part of government function that your religious belief doesn't trump the necessity to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. At the same time, because of something called the Tax Anti-Injunction Act, it's really hard to have standing to sue about a provision. So it's really hard to get to court to say that something in the tax law is unconstitutional, especially if it doesn't apply to you. So for instance, um, if I wanted to argue that it was unconstitutional to give a deduction for donations made to a church, I would not have standing to make that argument. What that effectively means is, for the most part, probably within reason, Congress can grant whatever religious accommodations it wants in the context of the tax law, mm-hmm. but it's not required to grant any. As a result, there seem to be a half dozen, eight different accommodations in the tax law, but there's no real, there's no consistency between them. It turns out they all come up on an ad hoc basis. Okay. Congress sees a problem, someone lobbies, someone says, hey, this doesn't seem fair. Um, and Congress either responds and grants an accommodation or doesn't respond and doesn't grant an accommodation. And then five years or 15 years or 25 years later, something else comes up. Congress doesn't think about why did we do this the last time? Instead, they say, okay, we're either gonna grant it or we're not going to grant it. I don't find that the optimal way to do tax policy. Um, I don't I, find that the optimal way to do any policy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you nope. do mention this interconnectivity between um, tax and constitutional law. Right. And uh, I'm quoting here from the book. Well, uh, you, the, the question shifts from, and here's where I quote, whether the government can or must accommodate religion to whether the government should accommodate uh, for uh, accommodate religion. So that shift from must to should, is that what you're referring to? That That is what I'm referring to. Um, it, because it will always be 
optional. It will always be within the discretion of Congress. And then Congress needs, when it does this kind of thing, to ask itself, should we make this exception from the general tax law? Mm-hmm. And, but the problem with saying that is there's no real objective, like the, there's no theory that they've developed that says this is why, these are the criteria that we should look at when we decide whether to grant um, an accommodation. So in the end of my book, I suggest three questions that policymakers should probably ask themselves um, if, as they think about whether to grant an accommodation. The first is, does an individual's religion cause them to act in a tax-disadvantaged way? The second is, what kind of accommodation can Congress create that would put them in a similar after-tax position as other taxpayers who don't face that religious um, that, that religious issue? And third, is there any other reason why we shouldn't grant this accommodation? So as we go through those, and I, I try to illustrate those through examples of accommodations that I've talked about throughout the other chapters mm-hmm. of the book. Mm-hmm. So for instance, for me, the, uh, the accommodation that I think is probably meets my criteria the best w- is an accommodation that doesn't exist, which is we currently allow with some constraints, we allow homeowners to deduct the mortgage interest that they pay. And that's a general, whether or not that's good policy, that's something that we do. And it turns out that under at least some versions of Islam, it's against people's beliefs, it's against their religious beliefs to pay or receive interest payments. Mm -hmm. As a result, um, this area of Islamic finance has arisen where you can essentially borrow money without actually paying interest. And effectively what you do is you pay, I mean, one style is the bank buys the home and then you pay them off over 30 years, but you also pay a rental amount. The rental amount isn't interest under at least some interpretations of Islamic law. I can't specifically speak to that because I'm not an expert in Islamic law, but there are at least many people who accept that that's not interest. But the monetary value in the end would equivalent? It's presumably roughly equivalent. I've been told that Islamic finance is slightly more expensive than standard um, right now. So an Islamic borrower probably pays a little more than I would pay just going to Chase. but essentially you can figure out and you can, they're, they're in a worse position because they're paying roughly the same amount that I'm paying if they buy the same house with the same style loan, but they're not paying interest. So they don't have a deductible interest payment. Mm, gotcha. So because of their religious beliefs, they're doing something just like the rest of us do, but they don't, after tax, they're worse off. So the second question is how can we fix that? And what I say in the book, is we should provide them with an interest equivalent deduction. We're used to that. We have a couple areas of law where we treat non-interest payments as interest. Mm -hmm. And we could do a number of things to figure that out. We could say that any amount they pay in excess of principal is an interest payment, or we could say currently interest is generally at 5%, so you can deduct the equivalent within a mortgage interest um, scale of 5% interest, we could do it a couple ways. If we provided that accommodation to Islamic borrowers, it wouldn't put the, it would put them back in the same position as if they didn't have a religious prescription on paying interest. Um, 
it wouldn't put them in a better position. We do, I don't want religious people to be in a better after-tax position because that would distort incentives. That would cause other people who don't face the same religious beliefs and practices to change their affairs so that they were fitting within this. But right. for me as a non-Muslim, I'm not in a better position if I borrow using Islamic finance instruments rather than a normal mortgage. That puts me in the same position. And in fact, I pay a little bit less, so I'm gonna probably go with what I'm familiar with and just take a standard loan where I pay interest. Then the final question is, is there another reason? And that other reason is, I mean, generally going to be, is it really, really expensive? Mm -hmm. And with these Islamic finance instruments, even assuming that every Muslim in the US um, isn't, it believes that he or she can't pay interest, it, I mean, Muslims make up, I believe, less than 1% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. This is something that is expensive, but we provide anyway. It's not going to incur, it's not going to significantly reduce government revenue. Yeah. So I, I don't see a compelling reason why we, outside of this, why we would not want to grant this accommodation. So under my framework, this would be the type of accommodation that Congress should at least seriously consider. Okay. I, I wish we, well, one of us knew more about Islamic law because I I feel like granting that accommodation might actually viol- could violate the spirit of the law for Muslims. So, uh, so uh, yeah. Right. I, I don't know enough about that. And I know yeah. that Islamic finance is not uncontroversial. I know that there are Islamic clerics who um, argue that it is in fact interest and it, it doesn't work. I'm indifferent to that because it doesn't apply to me. But to be completely clear, mm-hmm. a family, a Muslim family homeowner that borrowed money using Islamic finance wouldn't be required to take the deduction. If okay. they felt like it violated their religious strictures to get an interest equivalent deduction, they could certainly, just like if I didn't want to deduct, as I, as I do my taxes, if I don't put in there how much mortgage interest I paid, I don't get a deduction for it. It's entirely optional for me to take that deduction. Okay. Just give them the option. Right. Got it. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I'm definitely going to take that option, but mm. I'm, I'm not required to. Okay. Gotcha. So you narrowed the scope of the book to focus almost exclusively on religious individuals rather than institutions. I just wanted to ask why... I th- Mostly because I think the questions are significantly different. Okay. The question of should a church, should a mosque, should a synagogue be tax exempt is a question of tax exemption broadly. And there are differences. There are things definitely worth talking about there. For instance, in the tax exempt world, religions are treated better than your average tax exempt organization. A religious organization doesn't have to apply for tax exemption. It's automatically exempt unlike other tax-exempt organizations, it doesn't have to file an information return with the IRS, So it and it doesn't have to disclose that to the public. Unlike your average tax-exempt organization, you can go to guidestar.org and look up the Shedd Aquarium and see their tax return. Okay. Um, so there, there are definitely questions there, but those questions don't seem to revolve around religious practice. That is, there's nothing... I mean, I'm sure you could find a religion that said it's against our religion to file forms with the government, Mm -hmm. but that strikes me as not super plausible from what I, from the religions I'm familiar with. 
Um, so for the most part, religions aren't being, the churches themselves, religious institutions, aren't getting exemptions that are related to their practices. Their exemptions tend, and there are exceptions, to be more like exemption from paying federal income tax, just like the Shedd Aquarium, just like Loyola University, just like other tax-exempt organizations, exemption from property tax, just like other tax-exempt organizations. Okay. So, so it seemed outside the scope of what I was interested in looking at for this purpose, which isn't to say it's not interesting, which isn't to say there aren't very good questions that can and should be asked about it, um, just they're a different book. Right, and that book has been written by at least a couple people. Okay, um, right. I because I don't want to get into this, but I I did want to kind of understand why how Joel Osteen is able to buy a the Houston Rockets arena into a tax free, but that's a that's a different topic for another day, I guess. Well, I mean, he shouldn't be able I mean, buying it tax free. He, he should, he is not a tax exempt organization. My book actually talks about this a little bit too, not Joel yeah. Alstein particularly, but he is for the most part taxable on what his church pays him. So that's going to be taxable income to him. There are people like um, Kent Hovind who've argued that it shouldn't be, but he, he's going to pay taxes on most of his income. The one exception is he almost certainly gets tax-free housing or a tax-free housing stipend, which is another chapter of my book that stuff has since, um, more, more information has come out because the Seventh Circuit recently made a decision on that. Mm-hmm. And just so that I don't stay completely vague, under the tax law, ministers of the gospel, and that's a term of art, that's the yeah. words that the tax law uses, it would be absurd if it were just limited to ministers of the gospel because that would just mean Christian clergy. Mm-hmm. The IRS reads it more broadly than that to mean essentially any clergy can receive as part of their pay either church-provided housing without paying taxes on the value of the housing or part of their pay can be designated a housing stipend and they don't have to pay taxes on their housing. And I question the constitutionality of that. That strikes me as being... Um, as violating the Establishment Clause, but about three weeks ago, the Seventh Circuit issued a decision where they said, no, it doesn't violate the Establishment Clause. Um, But under my framework, that would not be acceptable. Um, So the first question, again, is, does an individual's religion cause them to act in a tax-disadvantaged way? And there's nothing about being clergy that somehow means that like you're disadvantaged because you have to pay taxes on the housing you receive Mm -hmm. for most of us with very limited exceptions if our employer provides us with housing we have to include the value of that housing in our gross income Um, that that's the general default rule there is an exception there are a couple exceptions the main exception is if you're required as a condition of your employment to live in the housing it's on the premises of your employer and it's provided for the benefit of the employer, for the employer's convenience, then you don't have to pay taxes on it. Kind of the quintessential version of that, I guess it may or may not happen, but would be like a surgeon who is always on call and therefore has to live in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the case that I've seen, the older case that's dealt with that particular provision is the guy who runs a funeral home. And he said, and this is prior to cell phones and stuff, but he said basically um, a body may come in at two in the morning. I have to be there to open the door. I have to be there where the phone is. So I'm living here not because this is where I want to live, but for the convenience of my employer to make, it's non-compensatory. I'm living here, I'm getting the housing because my employer wants it. Another example would be someone who works in the Gulf on an oil rig. You know, when you're living, when you're working on the oil rig, you're miles into the Gulf, you can't really conveniently commute every day. Sure. So that's, you're getting housing, but it's not compensatory in nature. It, it's for the sake of um, your employer so that it's more convenient for your employer. Make a case for spies as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, Treasury came up with this idea in the late 19-teens, but they, said, they issued something saying, this exception doesn't apply to clergy. A clergy can never qualify for this convenience of the employer test. So Congress didn't like that idea. In the early 1920s, passed a law saying in-kind housing for clergy um, is tax-free. Now that overshot because that was better for clergy than the general rule, which because it doesn't have a convenience to the employer requirement, it doesn't require that you be on the premises of the of your employer of the uh-huh. church. But I mean, it kind of it kind of made sense that original rule. Then in the 1950s, Congress codified Treasury's general for the convenience of the employer rule, and they also added something to the clergy, what I call the parsonage allowance. And what they added, they said, not only in-kind housing, but also you can include in your gross, you don't have to include in gross income the housing stipend, cash that we give you that you can use to pay your rent or your mortgage. How does, how do, how does the court define in-kind or, or the regulations? So in-kind just means it, the housing is provided. You, the okay. church has an apartment. So for example, the Fourth Presbyterian Church around the corner just bought a $975,000 three-bedroom apartment for housing their pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, they said they did it, and I believe they did it because you don't pay, pastors generally aren't paid enough to, pastors don't get rich being pastors for the mm-hmm. most part, with a clear exceptions, yeah. but mm-hmm. um, your average liberal Protestant church isn't paying a fortune. So they said, we need to own this building so that we can have our pastor live nearby. So that would be in-kind housing. That okay. would be employer-provided. In the code, that would be um, tax-free under Section 107.1. Is there any type of guidance as to what type of residence no. it must be? So it could be a penthouse, it could be a condo? Yes. Okay. Um, there, there is guidance. The code says for 107.2, which was added in 1954, um, the code does provide some limitations. And that was enacted because some Baptist churches especially started lobbying Congress saying, hey, we're poor churches. We don't actually own real estate. So that means our clergy is at a disadvantage because we can't provide in-kind housing, but we do pay them money and we could designate part of their salary as a housing stipend. So Congress enacted that and provided that and suddenly um, the treatment of clergy by virtue of being clergy is much better in spite of the fact, again, that they're not at a disadvantage by virtue of their religious beliefs. So they'd fail my first um, criterion. 
they'd also fail my second because this housing allowance, this Section 107 parsonage allowance, puts them in a better position than others because for a couple of reasons. One is they don't have to be on the premises of the employer and the housing can be provided for a compensatory purpose. They don't have to prove that they're there for the convenience of the employer. Mm. But third and most aggressively is the fact that they can get cash. The cash is limited. You can't designate someone's full salary as being a housing allowance and they don't mm. pay any taxes. Congress put a limit saying it can't be above the fair rental value of the house they live in. Okay. So if I live in a $500,000 house and it rents for $2,500 a month, or it would rent, that's the fair rental value, then I can't have more than $2,500 a month of my salary designated housing allowance. Okay. So it's not an unlimited housing allowance, but it nonetheless puts you in a better position. Because effectively, if you pay taxes at a 20% rate, you get $100,000, you pay $20,000 in taxes. But if $10,000 of your salary is in designated a tax-free housing allowance, then you're only paying taxes on 90,000 at 20%. That's $18,000 of taxes, but you still had $100,000. So you're $2,000 better off by virtue of the clergy, the parsonage allowance. Mm. So that fills my test number two, which is that being clergy in this case puts you in a better after-tax position than your normal person. Mm -hmm. So not only are you not making up for a problem, but you're giving an advantage to the clergy. I guess the third one, is there an extrinsic reason? Probably not. There's probably not enough clergy that this is super costly to the government. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but under my framework, you don't get to step three, and step three is irrelevant because you've failed steps one and two. The Seventh Circuit case you mentioned right. that said that uh, clergymen, uh, the treatment of clergymen did not violate the Establishment Clause. Right. Do you remember the reasoning that went counter to your framework? Yes. The, the reasoning was several fold. One is, in fairness, the Establishment Clause is kind of chaotic. It's hard to say exactly what the rules are. They went through two types of analysis, and they said that in neither case, under one set, one type of analysis, the question was, is there historical precedent for this? And they said, yeah, we've always treated churches, including parsonages, differently. Um, we've exempted parsonages from property tax. Not, I would say, a sophisticated tax argument because the question of taxing clergy is different from the question of taxing churches on their property. Mm, okay. But they, the second thing was they said, under the Lemon Test, this they accepted the argument and they believed the argument that this was a part, that the parsonage allowance was part of essentially a web of interconnecting for the convenience of the employer rules. So the for the convenience of the employer is not the only exception to the idea that you have to include the value of employer provided housing in your gross income. There are a large handful. For example, if your military um, you can exclude some of your housing. If you're a federal employee working overseas, you can exclude housing. If you are employee of a United States employer working overseas, you can exclude your housing. And they said, so this parsonage allowance is just part of that web. I don't find that a compelling argument because essentially most of these other things are not 
exception, they're not general, they're not related to the, for the convenience of the employer rule. The federal um, stuff, the stuff for federal employees, for instance, was because we wanted to give them a raise but didn't have the money to give them a raise. So the other way that you can give someone a raise is by not taxing them on something. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you gave them more after-tax income by excluding a part of their salary. The okay. reason for the military was because we liked the military, and it was one of, I want to say, at least a dozen tax benefits for the military that were codified in one provision. So I, I think that the Seventh Circuit is wrong about that because I think they misunderstand the legislative history and the function of these tax provisions. Okay. Then the final thing they said was under the Establishment Clause, part of the argument for it is we don't want to overly entangle religion and government. We don't want the government to be too invested in religion. And they said determining whether it would be for the convenience of the employer would be overly entangling. Again, I disagree with them on that. Not that there isn't any entanglement there, but it's not a question of religion. It's a question of what they actually do. I think that that's more secular and they could have done it. Whereas the question of whether someone is a minister of the gospel is a relatively intrusive question. So I actually think that the parsonage allowance requires more intrusion by the government on religious practice, more entanglement. But the Seventh Circuit doesn't agree with me. Okay. What do they know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, Richard. To, uh, to dive in back to taxing citizens of the kingdom of God. That sounds good. First, um, the I just wanted to jump straight to, Why I think these wanna... are good examples. Vows of poverty, sincere or otherwise. Okay. I know that you... you one of the things mentioned in this, which kind of touches on what you just said with like the mail order ministries and there's ways of kind of, there could be abuse of that system and how to do that. And then we, we talked a little bit about clergy. How, how is it different when they take vows of silence, or vow, not vows of silence, <laughs> vows of poverty, which I need to take one, but <laughs> vows of poverty. Um, because at that point, it's they. It sounds like they don't have money to right. pay taxes. So, so that that ends up being a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, so there there are two types that I go over in my book. One I would consider sincere. So um, Catholic priests and nuns take legitimate vows of poverty, mm -hmm. and then there were these mail order ministers who would get their ministry, take a vow of poverty, and essentially incorporate their house as their ministry and give all of their property to their incorporated ministry and have all of their pay, whether it were for religious reasons or because they were a carpenter who was doing carpentry work, right. go straight to the ministry. And honestly, I think the IRS did a good job at differentiating between these two things. Mm -hmm. That is, the legitimate vow, vow of poverty, they have given up control over the money. So a Catholic priest may get a check but he turns it over to his order, and he doesn't get to control how it is spent. Whereas the mail order minister turned over the check to his ministry and then used his ministry to pay his mortgage and his groceries and had complete control over what, what it did. Right. But, yeah. Go, sorry. Oh, yeah, but it turns out that under IRS practice, if you are operating under a vow of poverty, if you work for your order, they're not going to tax you on the income that you get or the support that you get from your order. So if you're, 
I, I don't know the exact contours, but I assume that if you're a Jesuit and you work for Loyola, at least in your capacity as a Jesuit, you're not going to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have gross income there. If, on the other hand, you're a Jesuit and you work for the University of Virginia, which is not a Jesuit university, mm-hmm. um, you will get a salary. And the IRS says, even though you have a vow of poverty and you've signed over the check immediately to your order, um, you, you'll be taxed on that amount. There was a about a day-long controversy when uh, Loyola started selling the likeness of Sister Jean. And it was hilarious because the first reporter that asked her about it, she, Sister Jean basically put it to bed, which it was because she was not going to get any of the right. profits. And they said, you know, did you agree to this? And you know, she's what? She was 97 at the time. I, yeah. yeah. Were, were they taking advantage of her because we're old age? And she's, she basically just said, do you know how Catholicism works? I don't get paid. So, right. yeah, it was, it was, it was a great moment. But, um, Okay, so the uh, then the not subject to human laws right. was a, another aspect where, the, and I saw this argument being made, but I wanted to dive into that a little bit. So what is this argument and has it ever worked? To answer the second part first, yes. no, it's okay. never worked. <laughs> the argument is um, for some religious reason, I can't pay taxes or I can't pay all of my taxes. And I go through a couple of them in the book. One of the arguments is made, a few of these arguments are made by everybody, but one of these arguments are made by the by Quakers. And under their religion, the Society of Friends um, eschews war. They're, they object to serving in war, they object to fighting, they object to paying for war. And so some Quakers, because of this, it's called the peace testimony. Mm-hmm. And because of their peace testimony, they have they don't want to pay taxes that will go toward war. Um, and they, they've done, in various ways, they've calculated how much of the government revenue goes toward the Pentagon and other war-related, violence-related things. And I think the number they came up with was 60%, but if it's not, I'm going to pretend for right now it's 60%. Okay. And so what they do is they say, we will pay 40% of our taxes. And they're actually fairly sophisticated and clever. They don't want to say, I'm getting this benefit where I get my other 60%. So what they argue is, I am escrowing the other 60%, and I will pay that other 60% once the government guarantees me that it will not use my money to fund the Pentagon, to fund the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. Okay. Um, so, and that that strikes me as the most sincere of these groups because they essentially part with the money. They, they say, it's not just I refuse to pay this, I refuse to pay it toward this particular purpose. Right. Um, and like I said in my spoiler, never works yeah um although there has been some lobbying on their behalf it it has never come to fruition it has never been passed it probably never will be passed but there has been lobbying you get others there are i forget everyone that i wrote about but there were some catholics who object to abortion and whether or not the federal government funds abortion they believed that it did and they said, we can't pay taxes if those taxes are going to eventually get to organizations that provide abortions. Right. Um, I, I, so I would say that that's kind of how, I don't think 
I think it would be, it's a fair statement to say the federal government indirectly funds abortion. That's probably yeah. fair. Yeah. But so um, with that, they, they made the argument that because of their religious beliefs, because of uh-huh. their allegiance to the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. they can't in good conscience pay taxes. And that always ends up being a failing argument. In part, it's a failing argument because, as the courts have said, collecting revenue is an essential part of government. It's something that they really need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it's a compelling purpose that trumps religious belief. Mm-hmm. Um, also, money's fungible, so you could clearly, comfortably argue that um, you, they can't trace their dollars to abortion or to the Pentagon or to whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, essentially, the law says, and I think my framework would probably come out the same way, my, the law says um, the fact that your religious beliefs don't agree with a particular federal um, purpose, a particular federal program, doesn't relieve you of the legal moral obligation to pay your taxes. So, I'm going to try to go down a little okay. hole here, but to try to simplify this, I understand the argument of we don't want to pay taxes because we don't want to fund abortion, but if you go to McDonald's and buy a burger, and McDonald's pays taxes on that burger, and that money goes to fund abortion, aren't you still just doing that? So, so yeah. Now you're going deeper down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Than, um, I mean, to be fair to the people who make this argument, mm-hmm. again, I think some of them are making it sincerely. I do think that yeah, the Catholics I, and the Quakers were making the argument sincerely. I'm more sympathetic to the Quaker just because they were escrowing their money. Right. Um, but at some point, you have to say, at this point, what I do is divorced from the ultimate consequences mm-hmm. because otherwise you would have to leave like you would have to entirely leave society or you would have to entirely get off the grid because it's a seed from the union right yeah. so yeah. so i i think realistically it's probably fair even the sincere the people who are insincere to grant them that they don't have to worry about every ultimate consequence mm-hmm. i i think in their mind, what they're responsible for is what they pay for just one step removed. That is what they pay to the government that the government then pays, not multiple steps removed. Okay. The, another example you talked about in the book was uh, were the Amish and Social Security. I don't right. know if you wanted to touch on that. Uh, so essentially, Amish belief is that that family and community are responsible for supporting um, each other. Therefore, insurance and social benefit plans take them away from God, take them away from doing their responsibility. I'm probably horribly paraphrasing and misphrasing, mm-hmm. but essentially that seems to be their belief. And their argument was social security is the type of thing that means we don't rely on each other. So for religious reasons, we can't accept social security and we don't want to pay social security taxes. And Congress actually, that was one of the cases, again, ad hoc, but Congress accepted that argument. And Congress exempted Amish and a few other people. They, they don't say Amish, but they say something like a religion that doesn't believe in paying 
I, I have it in my book. I just don't remember offhand what it says. But mm-hmm. a religion that existed before 1954 that doesn't believe in paying um, hmm. social security taxes or receiving the benefits is something to that effect. Um, they said you don't have to pay the self-employment tax. Okay. Now, social security taxes, there are – if you're an employee, like I'm an employee, then you pay the social security taxes um, – employer pays half and you yourself pay half if you're self-employed so everyone pays a seven and a half ish percent um, if you're self-employed you have to pay the full 15 percent so the self-employment tax congress said essentially the amish amish believers don't have to pay the self-employment tax okay there was an amish farmer who employed some other amish people and he said in essence I don't want to have to withhold social security tax because you know this violates my beliefs and I don't have to do self-employment tax. So I don't want to have to do employer side of social security tax either. Mm-hmm. And the courts ended up saying, no, Congress created this very specific exemption. Um, this exemption is just for self-employment tax. It's not for employer side social security tax. And because of that, we're not going to grant you an additional exemption that isn't um, what was in the law before. Mm-hmm. So, so say, for example, uh, you know, Congress enacted a law that uh, now we have universal health care, and there are certain Christians who, uh, you know, opt out of medical treatment over prayer and say they brought a similar argument with the omission of Social Security. Do you see that passing or... Or would you foresee that passing? You actually, I think you might have touched on this with the Obamacare and the individual mandate. So little, the, yeah. A, yeah, I a little bit. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't know. It depends on how sympathetic the people asking for it are. It it's again would probably be if I get outside of the tax world, I'm a little bit outside of what I can do because there may be mandatory. Um, accommodations outside of tax. It, there's some controversy about that, but there may be religious practices that have to be accommodated outside of the tax context. Whereas within the tax context, the courts are very clear that nothing has to be accommodated. Um, so I could see something like that passing. I don't know. And I, in my book, I say, I don't really think this framework can be applied outside of the tax area just because uh, tax functions differently in this situation. All right. And uh, the last part of that section was be fruitful and replenish the earth. I just, if we want to, that was the, I think there, there was an argument there about it stopping people from having more children because <laughs> they're having to pay taxes. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, but. that ends up. Being, whether that's true or not, that ends up being considered a frivolous argument. Yeah. It's not a winning argument. I think that's fair. <laughs> I, oh. I guess I'll ask, like, you, yeah. you say this framework wouldn't work outside of the tax, uh, uh, tax law just simply because it functions differently. How so? Um, again, because there's no – because the government has such a compelling interest in collecting taxes, okay, so it just there's nothing required. Where collection. Right. So, okay. I mean, the same argument, the government doesn't have a compelling interest in, for example, not allowing 
a prisoner to practice her religion. Mm. So without that compelling interest, there may be a requirement that you accommodate a prisoner in her desire to not eat pork or to have access to her Bible or whatever that is. Okay. Whereas it's not exactly the same, but there would be no compelling tax reason that you have to let a taxpayer do something. Okay. Um, so you, you could use these same general ideas and principles, I suppose, but you, you have other things that you would also have to take into consideration. Okay. Uh, we, we should have asked this from the very beginning, I just remembered. Uh, in 2017, the U.S. passed a new tax code, to, uh, uh, updated the tax right. code um, uh, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, and you put a note in your book that um, the changes effectively don't change too much the, the substance of your book. Right. The, the changes, it, it passed literally, I think, a Five month. days after I took the federal income tax exam final. Of course it did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it passed maybe a month before my book was going finally to press. Mm -hmm. But the good news was other than some numbers. So tax rates changed. In general, like if I was talking about individual tax rates, I'd say 39.6% rate. That got dropped to a 37% rate. So my note in my book was just, I may not have caught every place that tax rates changed, but the substance, there, there was nothing that actually ended up in the tax law that changed the tax treatment broadly speaking, of religious persons. Okay. So there, there were no substantive changes, but there were rate changes that would, you know, would apply and might change examples in my book. Was this a constant uh, stress for you while you were finishing publication of the book? Because you know it, it was an impending, it could yeah. come to fruition. It, it wasn't so much because, I mean, it, it was a sudden thing. It was a very quick, like less than a month process of getting this passed. But there, the only real religious discussion in there was whether it should, whether Congress was going to eliminate the so-called Johnson Amendment that prevents churches from endorsing candidates for office. Mm. Um, but because that was outside the scope of what I was writing about, that wasn't really going to be an issue. Okay. That's still in effect. Still in effect. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually, I think that's a fair trade-off. They get, they don't have to pay taxes, and on the other side, they they shouldn't get political. I I kind of like that. <laughs> Yeah. That I mean, that that's the way. Uh, yeah, that's the way we, our law currently is. Mm -hmm. It, not everyone abides by it, but that's you it, know. It's vastly under enforced, both in the church context and the non-church tax exempt context. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, if you endorse or oppose a candidate for office, you should lose your tax exemption and maybe pay an excise tax. It is very, very, very rarely enforced. Gotcha. Um, okay, I did want to, uh, I know we touched a little bit on this before, but the deductible contributions part right. that you mentioned, there was, uh, you, you in the book, there's church donations, auditing Scientologists, which I'm fascinated by everything Thanks. Scientology. I, I got to read like three or four books on Scientology to write that chapter. Yeah. It's, and mostly they were unnecessary and unhelpful for the chapter, but they were very interesting to read. Yeah. And then private religious schools. I wanted to, so what would constitute a deductible contribution? What would not constitute a deductible contribution? And we can dive into Scientology okay. auditing, but let's start with church donations in private schools. So the general rule is if you make a donation to mm -hmm. 
an organization <laughs> exempt under Section 501c3. Yeah. Um, and you don't get anything in exchange, anything, I don't want to say tangible or physical because those aren't the right word, but if you don't get anything of value back, you can deduct that donation. So the easiest example is um, WBEZ, the Chicago's NPR station, is a 501c3 organization. If I donate $100 to WBEZ, I can take a $100 deduction. If, however, I donate $100 and I get a $32 tote bag in exchange, mm. I can only deduct $68. I can't deduct the value of the thing I get in exchange. Because essentially that part isn't a charitable contribution. That is a quid pro quo. I get something back. So generally speaking, you go to, I mean, you're, you're at a religiously affiliated school, but whether it was religiously affiliated or a non-religious private school, you pay tuition, you're paying money to a tax-exempt organization, but you're getting, hopefully, your tuition's worth. Mm -hmm. So you're getting something in exchange for that. So you can't, when you pay tuition, you can't deduct the tuition that you pay because you're getting a benefit in exchange. Your education isn't like a tote bag. It's not a physical thing, but it's a thing of value. And if the fair market value is $40,000 a year, then presumably those $40,000 aren't deductible. If you give Loyola $40,000 like in five years, you're not a student here, and you don't get anything in exchange, you can deduct the full $40,000. 40,000 is a big number. I should have said like $100 because that's mm -hmm. more realistic. Do you know if attribution rules apply to those cases? Um, well, say you have nothing to do with Loyola other than your son goes to Loyola as a student. So as a general rule, your son goes to Loyola, you donate money, you still get a deduction. In theory, if you donate money and in exchange for donating money, your son gets into the school, that's not deductible. Um, that there's a tricky line there, a line that has become trickier in light of recent academic admissions scandals. Um, but sure. uh, but nonetheless, the, I, the concept is if you don't get anything in exchange, and that doesn't mean you can't benefit from it. Like if I, I give money to the Harris Theater, a theater, a nonprofit theater here in Chicago that does dance and music performances. I also buy tickets and go there. And the tickets I buy, I don't get a deduction for. Sure. But if I give them money not in exchange for a ticket, and my money helps to make sure that they can continue doing the programming, I do get at least an incidental benefit from that. Okay. But if they were to offer, for example, preferential seating with then, your donation, then... Then there's some value to that. Okay. And, I mean, similarly, I tithe to my church. Mm -hmm. So I give them money, and I get whatever the benefit of attending church is it's not quite the same thing because they're not going to block me out if i don't go but i get at least a warm glow arguably a spiritual benefit um, i get some benefit but that type of benefit the benefit of donating to the opera because you like opera isn't considered a quid pro quo benefit um, right and so yeah. in scientology the question became raised scientologists have a product a procedure called auditing and essentially, it's where a Scientologist goes together with an auditor and they, they do something that essentially clears their mind and improves them and gets them closer and closer to a state of perfection or salvation or whatever their particular beliefs are. Mm -hmm. And there is actually a price list for these auditing services. 
Um, so you pay $100 and you get 10 hours of auditing, or I don't think that's anywhere near the prices, but whatever the price list is, you pay a certain amount of money and you get auditing. The IRS argued that it was a 100% quid pro quo. That is, you were paying for a service. And scientists, Scientologists argued, no, we're just getting a spiritual benefit. This is a donation. We're not getting anything of value in exchange. And they have at least a leg to stand on on that. They lost at the Supreme Court level. Mm -hmm. But for instance, the IRS has put out revenue rulings, um, official rulings that say, for instance, that pew rents, which is a way that some Protestant churches used to raise money, yeah. are deductible. A pew rent is I donate a certain amount of money to the church and I get to sit in this prestigious pew. I have a pew reserved for me. They've said there are apparently certain types of masses that you can pay for for the recently deceased. Um, and if you pay a certain amount of money, then you get the benefit, you, you get a mass said for your deceased relative. And the IRS said those payments for masses are deductible. There's no quid pro quo. Some synagogues, for their high holy day celebrations, you pay a certain amount of money to be able to go and attend the, the holiday. And the IRS has said those payments are deductible. They're not quid pro quo. And that Scientologists said our auditing payments are essentially the same thing. And the Supreme Court said no. For various reasons, they decided this was, in fact, a quid pro quo. I think one of the reasons was because the Supreme Court was skeptical of Scientology because it's a new religious movement. It's not an old Catholic or Jewish or Protestant movement. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 they don't say that explicitly. It's yeah. not in the decision. But it's really hard to differentiate between these acceptable practices, these deductible practices and non-deductible practices. But the story doesn't end with the Supreme Court. This is one case where the IRS provided the um, accommodation. A couple years after the decision, the IRS entered into a um, confidential agreement with Scientologists the Church of Scientology that eventually got leaked that said, going forward, we're going to allow um, Scientologists to, we won't challenge the deduction. We won't disallow deductions for auditing um, amounts. And honestly, I think that's probably the right result because again, auditing is really hard to say that if you're not a Scientologist, it's hard to say that auditing has any benefit that you're getting back. Just like if you're not a Protestant, it's kind of hard to say that paying for a special reserved pew has benefit. I think the auditing expenses are probably more like the things that are deductible. There's some religions that um, are, well, most religions can be said that they're close-knit communities. Right. And uh, I'm sure that there's religions out there. I'm not sure if Scientology and, and, and Mormons fall under this umbrella where uh, the houses of worship are not open to the general public, where you must first be a member uh, in order to be accepted into the community. So um, the Mormon churches are open to the public. Okay. Scientology, I don't know. I'm not sure about the religious practices. Okay. I do know they have other types of centers that are generally open to the public. 
so for religious institutions that have centers that are only for members, um, would any type of payment, could, could some value be derived from that? I think, so I, I think there is value derived, but I also think that it would be a tax deductible donation. It's worth noting, in spite of the fact that this isn't entirely accurate, if you join a museum in Chicago, mm -hmm. and it's not the Field Museum, your membership costs $120, you'll get a letter from them saying, you donated $120 and received nothing of value in exchange. Even though you have this little piece of plastic that lets you get into the museum for free, mm -hmm. and that for a family of five like mine mm -hmm. is worth about $60 a visit. I, I got the uh, annual membership for the Shedd Aquarium about two years ago. Uh -huh. I, I mean, I can it, tell you that was almost $1,000 in savings. Yeah, no, it, it, if you go, it, uh. it's great. And it there is value there. It's kind of an intangible value. It's hard to say exactly what it is because... For you, you go 50 times, maybe it's $1,000 of value. Mm -hmm. For someone else who goes twice, it's $100 of value. Mm -hmm. So so it's hard to pin down exactly what the value is, but it's also hard to say that there's no value to it. I think the ability to enter into a closed religious area is probably more like the general practice with museums. Okay. Again, they, there is a benefit. I mean, there there is a benefit at least the warm glow of knowing you did something good to most charitable contributions, mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be the kind of benefit that most people would consider a quid pro quo. Okay. One part you touched on was uh, religious communitarians. I wanted to dive a little bit in there. First off, what is religious communitarianism? So, so religious yeah. communitarianism is roughly the idea, in the US it's usually Christian, and it's based on the idea in the New Testament in Acts, where the group of Christians after Jesus dies have all things in common. They give all of their money to the apostles and the apostles use that money and that property to care for the entire group. Mm -hmm. So throughout US history, well, throughout US history, since at least the 19th century, there have been a number of religious communitarian groups where the religion gets together, they essentially eschew private property. They either collectively hold everything or the church owns everything and they, individuals don't own anything. They work together. It's not limited to Christianity. Um, in Israel, early, several of the early Jewish Israelis, even before Israel became a state, were from um, communist countries were progressive socialists, mm -hmm. and they put together. I'm going to horribly mispronounce it, but kibbutzim. Kibbutzim, yeah. Ki kibbutzim, which were communitarian agricultural organizations, where also the individuals in the kibbutz didn't own the property themselves. Mm -hmm. Everyone, the the kibbutz itself collectively owns the property. Kibbutzim seem to be somewhere between 200 and about 1,000 people. And sometimes smaller, yeah. Yeah, sometimes yeah. smaller. And they tend to be agricultural, um, and everybody works. They share property. They share. They, they take turns doing different things, and they collectively hold the property. It's so communist dreamland. It's, it, it essentially it, is a very small version of communism, yes. yeah. Um, so, so in the U.S., we actually have a weird provision 
that deals with this. Mm -hmm. And in the US, what it is, is it's section 501D. It comes right after the 501C3 that we know about. Yeah. Well, a little bit after it. Yeah. And it says that if you have a religious or apostolic organization, which is its definition, um, you have to go through what the definition is, but that's what it's called, mm -hmm. then the organization itself, the religious or apostolic organization, doesn't have to pay taxes. Instead, the various members all pay taxes on their share of things. Um, and it it makes sense, it works. It, it works for, it would fit under my framework to come back to the framework. Mm -hmm because otherwise they're disadvantaged. For me, if I were a farmer, I'd have my own farm, I would pay taxes on what I earned, I'd get the deductions that I had, that would be great. But now the three of us get together, we pool all of our stuff into an entity. The entity owns everything. So now I work, the entity pays me, the entity's gonna pay taxes, and then I will have to pay taxes on the value of the things that the entity gives me. Okay. I know, a lot about uh, kibbutzim. I do not know a lot about the Amish community, but are they similar in that regard or I, no? I don't think the Amish are. The Shakers were, mm -hmm. early Mormons were. The most interesting group, I think, is called the Israelite House of David. Okay. Have you guys heard of that? I have not. It was organized in like the early 1900s in Michigan. Okay. They're, they were a communalist group. They owned all things in common. They weren't allowed to shave or cut their hair. They had a baseball team that traveled around. My father-in-law's from the Midwest, and he has seen their baseball team. I mean, they don't really exist anymore. Sure. Or they're not that big anymore. They also opened an early amusement park. If you look on YouTube for Israelite House of David, um, you can find like seven second clips of these like little go-karts that go around. They also had a traveling concert band and a traveling jazz band. Really, really interesting organization. Um, and they were founded, they were a communalist organization. They owned all things in common. Benjamin Purcell was the leader and he kind of led that stuff. And they were actually one of the reasons why 501D was originally passed. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, there's a one paragraph, maybe a two paragraph legislative history, and it mentions the Israelite House of David, and I believe the Shakers. And Congress says, we're providing this accommodation to make it equal to as if they were working on their own. So there's not a lot of detail. Currently, there are about 200, maybe slightly more than 200 organizations that are exempt under 501D. And the idea behind that accommodation is it puts them in the same position they would be in if they didn't hold all things in common, if there were no entity between the individuals and their income and their property. Okay. Should we jump into, should we talk a little bit about sexual and economic experimentation? I, I think we just touched it, on ex, uh, economic. It, it's up to you. Um, I, I don't think we need to, but okay. if you want to. Let's move on. It's, I found that aspect fascinating. It, but, I mean, yeah. if you want to, we... Uh, let's it, jump in there a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just, uh, let's touch on this just very briefly. Um the sexual experimentation and how that related to tax law. So, well, it doesn't directly relate yeah. to tax law. It relates to communitarian organizations. Mm -hmm. These organizations 
these religious groups were interestingly progressive and weird and strange. So um, you had not only were, and this isn't true about every single one, Mm -hmm. but if they thought that American economics capitalism was broken in the early 19th century, they might think that other things were broken too, like family structures. Okay. So you had the Mormons who adopted polygamy and had polygamy for about 40 or 50 years, Mm. in addition to the communalism. Their version of polygamy was one man married to multiple women. You had the Oneida community, and maybe you've heard of Oneida. They make silverware and plates now, and they did back then too. But the Oneida community was, what did they call it? it? Essentially, it was, the idea was that every man was married to every woman and every woman was married to every man. So you didn't have the limited sexual availability. You didn't have, um, people weren't partnered off. Okay. Um, then you had the Shakers and the Shakers believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ and they believed in celibacy. They believed in not having families. Um, Hard to continue a religion that way. There are maybe five or six shakers left. Okay. Um, They they tended communities or people. People. Wow. Okay. Um, They they tended to increase because people would bring them orphaned children, or they would get converts. Gotcha. Um, But the shakers themselves generally didn't have children. All of the all three of these things would have been probably as radical in Victorian and pre-Victorian America as this idea that we share all property in common. The sharing all property in common, though, was pretty radical. Courts didn't really know how to deal with this. So you had a lot of problems when you had dissenters who had contributed their property and now they want to leave. Do they get their property back? Even if they signed a contract saying they wouldn't, often courts didn't recognize the validity of that contract or didn't recognize it as binding in the U.S. So so in many ways, these religious organizations were wildly, I don't want to say out of step, but just not even in the same parade as the general American public. Mm-hmm. I, that, that's the uh, term experimentation. It definitely so, experimentation. Yeah. Um, have you seen Wild Wild Country, by the way, in, I on Netflix? It's about, um, I forget the name of the community, but they basically took over a city in Oregon that had like 150 citizens. Oh. Um, I can't remember. I can't. But they, all of a sudden, there were four thousand people there that were basically doing. Right. We were, yeah, we were, yeah. Not not everyone was married to everyone, but they definitely had that mentality when right. they lived there. But yeah. So it was, it's it's a it's a six part series of documentary. It's okay, fascinating. But yeah. Okay, so let's double back to the the framework. Okay. I know there were parts we have not touched on where. Um, I guess let's just dive in. Where, what what do we need to, what have we missed so far? Yeah. Um, so essentially I wanted this framework to be both backward and forward looking. I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to evaluate the, the various accommodations that I've talked about in the book mm-hmm. according to this framework. And it turns out that most of them don't do terribly well on this 
on this regard. Some of them, okay. some of them, if my framework had been in place and it had been taken seriously, some of the accommodations that we have wouldn't have been enacted. Some of the accommodations we have would be enacted. But I, I, I like what you just said because it, it makes now my question about the title has been answered. Okay. Because it's a holistic approach, really. Right. Because you're looking at it backwards from a historical perspective and moving forward. Right. And so the goal with it was also to provide something not only that could either explain prior accommodations or explain why they're not good, but something that could be used to evaluate future religious claims. And there will be future religious claims. In the book, I talk about, um, for instance, if a group going forward wants to practice polygamy um, from and get a special treatment because of their strange marital treatment, or if they want to practice um, partnering up but not being married, what should the tax law do? And I evaluate it with that. And you know, since the book was published, there is a First Church of Cannabis in Indianapolis. Um, potentially, I don't know what tax issues that would raise, but potentially it raises tax issues. There will be other religions that come up, other practices that come up, and some of those practices, because they happen in the world, in a world where we're enmeshed with commerce, are going to have tax consequences. And so my goal with this is to provide policymakers with some set of questions they can ask when someone comes up and says, hey, I want you to accommodate my religious practice by reducing my taxes. I want them to have something that they can look at and say, okay, question one, question two, question three, yes, I think we should grant this accommodation, or no, I think we probably shouldn't grant this accommodation. Have you gotten a sense of the feedback from policymakers to your book? I am, no. Okay. I, I'm still hoping to hear from <laughs> uh, policymakers. How can we help? No. Uh, uh, this, this is perfect. <laughs> I wanted to ask two questions. Okay. And okay. one's broken up into three, but it's not a major question. So it'll be the, four questions. The, so the, yeah. So the, <laughs> yes. So the first question is, uh, as I was researching for this interview, I came uh, about the IRS 30 Dozen, which is an annual right. publication where they uh, showcase the most prevalent and popular tax schemes. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the most... Um, uh, prevalent in, in respect to this theme of, of religion and tax law that so in religion there there's this group of people called tax protesters mm -hmm. and they argue that for various reasons um, the tax law is unconstitutional or at least it doesn't apply to them okay. and I would say that the mail order ministers I talk about early in the book are tax protesters okay. and that's probably the big thing for the most part people aren't for the most part people aren't using their religious beliefs to avoid paying taxes unless they're explicitly using it to say I don't need to pay taxes okay okay by All the right. way if you follow the IRS's Instagram feed they have great illustrations of their dirty dozen okay uh, and then um, given your background and your current uh, position as professor. I just want to ask if you have a favorite jazz composer of music. Uh, what's your favorite literary work, fiction and nonfiction, and if you have a favorite uh, tax opinion? So right now, I, not my favorite, but I am so excited. Have you guys heard Lenny Pickett? Yes, He's sir. the saxophone player for the Saturday Night Live yeah. band. When my wife was in grad school at NYU, we went to hear um, a 
he was leading a group of saxophones playing his album Lenny Pickett and the Borneo Horns um, and I wanted that album and I looked on Amazon it was out of print and when I first looked about 12 years ago you could get the CD for $500 <laughs> today if you want it you can find on Amazon the CD for $50 to $100 Mm-hmm. But a couple years ago, my wife got me a record player for oh. my birthday, okay. and I found the record for eleven dollars. So it's in the mail, headed my way. Oh, okay. He's not my favorite composer, although I really like him. But it's probably the album I'm most excited to listen to because I haven't heard it. I've never heard the album, and I've only heard the songs performed live years okay. and years ago. Okay. So that's not answering your question, but it's answering a, a kind of sideways. It's a better. Yeah. It's a better answer. Um, favorite literary. Um, That is a really good question. For a long time, my favorite author was David Foster Wallace, who is excellent, and I haven't read him in quite a while. Um, trying to think what I've been reading recently. I've been reading more nonfiction than I should. So um, I will say, can you cut something for a second while I think of his yeah. name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, this will. When you hear it back, you will answer it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, right. <laughs> sorry, I'm gonna. There won't be any uh, any delay. Or Nico and I. Can it wasn't meant to be a trick question. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So my daughter has recently been studying poetry, and I've been reminded of the poetry of Jared Manley Hopkins, mm-hmm. okay. who was a Jesuit priest and a late Victorian poet, and his poems. Fittingly, since we're talking a little bit about religion, his poems I find deeply religiously moving and really, really fun. Wow, interesting. I'm going to look that up. Um, and then, can you remind, what was the third question? Favorite tax yeah. court opinion? There was a tax court opinion from a couple years ago that I wrote about in the book. Um, someone had been delinquent for a long, lot of years in his taxes. And so he ended up on a payment plan. And when you're on a payment plan with the IRS, the IRS determines how much you can afford to pay every month and basically takes into account certain expenses. So you get a housing expense, a clothing expense, a food expense, and then the money in excess of whatever that amount is, you have to pay in taxes until you've paid your full bill. And this guy was hundreds of thousands of dollars behind. (laughs) And he argued that he should be able to pay tithing to his church. That should be counted as one of his necessary expenses. Interesting. And it turns out that the IRS has a policy that if your employment depends on paying tithing, if you're a minister and you have to make donations to the church, to stay in good standing, then you um, are that then that counts as some as an expense that's allowed. The thing is, he was a Mormon, so he wasn't employed. It was a lay clergy and. He said, but to keep my lay clergy positions, I have to pay tithing. And the tax court said, no. You don't have to be a lay you, clergy. Yeah, you don't have to be yeah. lay clergy. We, this is a question of making a living. We want you to be able to make a living. So it, if you were employed and you had to do it to make your living, then that's cool. But otherwise, no. So that's off the top of my head, one of my favorite tax court opinions. Well, Professor Brunson, thank you for coming on. Thank you uh, so much. Yeah. This was fun. Yeah, yeah thank you appreciate for it. And uh, for Dialogue to Know, I'm Richard Labovitz. And I'm Nico Espina. And we will see you next time.